Industry Talks is here to bring you the best and brightest in the aviation industry. We will be speaking with industry experts on a wide range of topics, from career successes to career changes. The aviation industry is on the rise, and we're here to help you navigate through these unexpected times. Whether you are entering or re-entering the workforce, this is the pilot podcast that you've been asking for. Today's guest is Captain Kevin Simmons. Kevin is well known in the South African aviation circles and has had an extensive career, having flown numerous types with various South African airlines. Most recently, he operated the Boeing 737-800 for South African operator Manga Airlines, where in addition to his duties as both captain and instructor, he headed up the implementation of the Upset Prevention Recovery or UPRT program. In this interview, he breaks down why loss of control and flight has become a leading cause of accidents in commercial aviation. UPRT's origins and how its implementation has reduced incidences of lock eye and breaks down some of the common scenarios that could result of a loss of control in flights event. All right, Kevin, can you hear me? Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, welcome to PDC Energy Talks, and thanks for being willing to talk to us today about upset prevention and recovery training, one of those hot topics in aviation uh, worldwide currently, helping reduce those incidences of lock eye. And just, just great to have you on the show, and uh, glad we could make this happen. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate you guys having me, and yeah, I look forward to the chat and. Hopefully, I can uh, give you guys some good information for your listeners to enjoy. Yeah, I hope so. It's uh, a hot topic, like I said. Um, a lot of questions around it, and it's something that I think people become more aware of once they're qualified as a commercial pilot and start entering, entering into more of the part 121 airline type operations is where it really starts to come to the fore and they would have heard whispers about it prior to that but you know upset prevention recovery training something that only really happens um later on in a pilot's development career i mean before that you know you've even going out to the general flying area doing steep turns and stalls and spins for that matter um when would classify as upset at a at, at an airline type level, but not something that that's really touched on very early on. Uh, no, it's not at the moment. Um, as you say, it is a fairly hot topic at, uh, right now, simply because it's it's somewhat new in the industry, although it has been around for 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 plus 10, 10 plus years now. But uh, yeah, you're hundred percent correct. Um, it is something that. Uh, New sort of pilots only only get to be exposed to later on when they are working for an airline with some decent training resources, uh, rather than early on in their career. And uh, maybe it should be the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe we can unpack that a bit later in the discussion. But just for sure. the benefit of of people watching or listening, should I, I rather say, what was your journey into aviation? How did you first get started? What's your background? Um. A fairly conventional one, I guess. I came from an aviation family. Uh, my dad was a pilot as well as just about everybody else in my family. Um, so I'm a, what you could uh, consider an, an ex-airline brat. And um, I just grew up in, in aviation and um, flying. And 
as a career, it's all I ever really wanted to do. So when it uh, came that time for me to decide on how I was going to earn a living, it uh, wasn't really much of a decision. It was sort of always always what I was going to do. Okay, so you've just always been around aircraft and, and the flying fraternity, I suppose. Um, exactly, did yeah. you did you start flying straight out of school or was there a bit of a gap between between when you started your flight training and, and when you left? It was pretty much straight out of school. Um, I did go and, and, and study something non-related for a, a year prior to, to flying. Um, and then uh, that made me even more certain that uh, flying in aviation was exactly what I wanted to do. So um, I started my flying training my second year out of school. Okay. And where did you start that training? Uh, it was down in Cape Town. I went down to Cape Town and um, joined up to one of the flying club slash sort of schools there. And um, yeah, did it did it that way. And how did you how did you get your first break in industry? Um, well, if I look back, um, I suppose you could you could think you've had a, a couple breaks really, but you you kind of can't decide which one is your major break. But um, yeah, it was tough in those days. It was it was only a couple years after nine eleven. Mm-hmm. And the the aviation market was was on its knees pretty much as it is now, and, and um, finding work was was tough. So, as I said, I just took a, a fairly conventional path. I, I did some part time instructing. Um, from there, got enough hours. I got into a baron doing some charter work. Got enough hours there to to get onto a King Air in nineteen hundred. Went off and did my my stint of contract, like so many of us have done. And uh, from there, I guess I got my, my first big break getting into the airlines, which was nationwide in 2007. And um, yeah, since then, I've, I've stayed in the airlines. I've just uh, moved uh, between a few of them. All right. And yeah, you exclusively find the 737 now. Um, and uh, if you don't mind asking, where are you working? What's your, what's your portfolio? So currently at Mango, I've been at Mango since 2012, so just going on nine years now. Um, started there as an FO, got my command a couple of years later, went into the training department as well, and I've uh, been training there for just over four years now. Um, and yeah, obviously with Mango, it's just uh, solely on the on the 73800. How did you end up involved in upset prevention and recovery training? I've always had an interest for it. Um, as an instructor, you know, when back in the day, you always have an interest in teaching your your students the the latest sort of uh, trends and um, best world practices of 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 flight training. So I've always had an interest in it in it like that. So when it sort of became mandated a good couple of years ago by law in South Africa, Mango needed to put together a training program and uh, get some UPRT instructors on board, and um, yeah, I let them know of my interest and two other guys started the training before me when we needed two more guys as the airline grew slightly. I was one of the, the other two guys who, who went across and uh, did all the training. Okay, fantastic. So volunteering in aviation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be careful when you do that. Yeah, exactly. Got involved in UPRT training. I'd like to, to expand on that in a little bit. Just for the benefit of those who might not be familiar with exactly what UPRT is or they haven't come across it yet, give us a quick breakdown on exactly as to what UPRT is 
and uh, why there's been such a push towards it internationally. In, in aviation, we love our acronyms, as, as you know. Um, so UPOT just stands for Upset Prevention Recovery Training. Um, and in its most basic form, it's advanced training for pilots and skills they learn arm them um, with the, the required handling skills to be able to, to recover an aircraft that is in an undesirable aircraft state or a loss of control in flight, as we also make an acronym of, of lock-eye. Um, so there's obviously massive emphasis on the flying side of things with regards to handling skills, but it goes much further than that because it also provides an immense amount of training for the pilots to be able to mentally overcome the, the extreme startle factor or fright that uh, they may get if they were suddenly and very unexpectedly in an, in, a, in an upset aircraft. Most of us, if we haven't been in that situation before, we will get a fright and uh, a major startle factor. And we, if we aren't trained, the odds are pretty much guaranteed that we will, we will make the wrong moves in terms of an effective recovery. So, yeah, basically UPRT is just advanced training to arm a pilot with those sorts of skills to be able to them to uh, save the aircraft. Stick and rudder skills is something that's that's trained from day one. Um, why is there such an emphasis specifically on stick and rudder now um, when you're reaching such a, a, a later stage in your career where one would almost think that those kind of skills are already deeply established? Uh, well, you, you're correct in the sense that when we are up-and-coming young PPL pilots and we sent off to the, the general flying area and we do our maneuvers training, um, we, we do learn uh, stick and rudder skills to a level that is required for, for um, being successful on your check ride. Um, and obviously, those requirements are there because that is what is the industry deems to be uh, suitable. However, the, that's in a very controlled environment. Um, for a long time with an instructor next to you, helping you out. And there's not a lot of startle factor involved in those maneuvers. So you do learn the basics there for sure. Um, and you do develop um, good stick and rudder skills, no doubt about that. And then you generally go off onto the airlines. The issue starts to come in with uh, flying the airline aircraft, a lot of automation, and a slight shift away from hand flying the airplane as much as you were possibly used to, be it a, your small aircraft. Um, so there's a degradation of stick and rudder skills to a certain extent over there. Um, and and again, I just come back to the the whole startle the whole startle factor. We can be in control of the airplane when you know exactly what's going on, um, and you can have the best stick and rudder skills to fly the airplane. However, if you were suddenly and very unexpectedly put into a nasty upset where the aircraft was upside down and facing the ground, um, even though you have good stick and rudder skills, would you know how to recover? That's the main question. And it's been proven that very experienced pilots, um, flying airliners with tens of thousands of hours, have unfortunately been or found themselves, should I say, in an upset situation. And um, with all of their experience and, and uh, 
good stick and rudder skills, they were still unable to recover the aircraft, unfortunately. So there's been several accidents over the last many decades um, that have highlighted the fact and the need to bring this to the fore and more focus to be put on upset prevention, first of all, and then recovery. You mentioned there a number of incidents which have occurred over the years that were preventable but weren't because pilots weren't adequately trained or, or prepared for those events. And you've mentioned startle a couple of times, but any accidents that listeners might be readily aware of or ones that were specifically well reported on? There's been, there's been several. Um, as I say, loss of control in flight events are the number one and leading cause over and above sea fit and runway excursions or anything else. Lock eye are responsible for the most hull losses and fatalities. So it's an extremely important thing to try and overcome. The two incidents or accidents that, that spring to mind at the moment, the one is that uh, Colgan Air Dash 8 Q400 in, 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 in the US, um, where they, they unfortunately stalled the aircraft um, on final approach. The reasons are, are not important at the moment, but the aircraft uh, stalled. And they attempted to recover, but in hindsight, they, they didn't do the correct uh, maneuvers. They didn't uh, do what they needed to do to recover. They tried their best, um, and it was unsuccessful. And unfortunately, the aircraft crashed, and uh, there were no survivors. The other one, which is very well known as well, is the Air France 447 out of the Atlantic. Um, again, they also stalled the aircraft, high altitude stall, um, Arguably had sufficient altitude to recover the aircraft, but um, didn't make the right moves. And uh, as we all know, they, they never recovered either and, and ended up in the ocean, unfortunately. Okay, so you mentioned that that lock eye specifically is the leading cause of accidents internationally. Um, when you refer to lock eye, loss of control and flight, what does that mean? Oh, that's, it basically just means um, that for some reason, whatever the reasons may be, um, the pilots lose control of their aircraft um, in flight. And, well, we're obviously talking about the ones that aren't, uh, that, that uh, become statistics, unfortunately, because they get, they get listed down. And um, out of those statistics caused by, by Lockheed, the, yeah, it's the leading cause of, of hull losses and fatalities. All right, and so that locker that would lead to uh, what we would classify as jet upset. Yeah, basically, um, jet upset. The we can consider the, the the aircraft to be, or the jet, if you want to talk about it in that sense, to be to be upset already outside of certain parameters, um, and that's where the the upset prevention side of things come in. But if you don't do that, and the the upset is allowed to continue it very quickly um, becomes a loss of control event where the pilots actually lose control of the aircraft. And now the recovery side of the training must be able to kick in. All right. So upset could quite readily resolve in or result in the loss of control in flight, in which case that's where the pilots would need to fall back on the UPRT, upset prevention recovery training, in order to recover the aircraft from that undesirable across that. Yeah, for sure. And inevitably, um, 
it goes, the, the upset ends up in a stall and uh, you need to be able to recover from that stall. All right. How does one define exactly what jet upset is? How do I know I've now entered into the realms of, uh, I've departed from the normal phase of flight and now in a, in a condition which is quite dangerous and could lead to me losing control of this aircraft and fly. The the industry has has sort of adopted, as we know with flying, we need to sort of put numbers on everything. Um, so the industry has developed a an envelope outside of which you can consider the aircraft to be upset. And um, at the moment, it's uh, if your aircraft has a 25 degrees nose up attitude or a 10 degrees nose down attitude, or a bank in excess of 45 degrees. Um, and that is obviously certain aircraft can, can fly there no problem. So those parameters I've just mentioned are all unintentional. If the aircraft is unintentionally in, the, in, in, in that situation, or if the aircraft is being flown at, at an airspeed, um, not suitable or not desirable for that phase of flight, that can also be considered an upset. All right, and you mentioned unintentionally. So this is where the startle factor that you mentioned starts to creep in, um, not realizing that you have now exceeded these parameters and then, of course, realizing that you are now where you are. You've lost your situational awareness. How would you describe a startle factor exactly? Um, a startle factor without getting into too much uh, detail about it is is basically um, what could be we could refer to your your flight of or your fight or flight um, sort of response. Um, so you, you you become overloaded with a a shock or a surprise or something. This is something very unexpected um, to you and something you're not ready for possibly. Um, and it's 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 we call it we refer to it as startle factor, but it's it's basically just getting a really big fright in the airplane, which is is not a place you want to be getting any frights. Um, and because of that startle factor, your human nature sort of instinct kicks in, and your 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 fight or flight um, sort of takes over your your responses. And if uh, you aren't trained to be able to recognize the startle factor and be able to deal with it. Um, the odds of you being able to recover effectively are, are fairly slim. All right, so startle factor, getting a big fright, and basically having a knee-jerk reaction to the situation you find yourself in and perhaps intuitively doing the wrong thing and exacerbating it and only making the situation even worse. Yeah, in a general sense, I would say that's a good way to describe it, yeah. All right, so now here's the question. Um, when, did the, when did the big push towards introducing upset prevention and recovery training begin? And, and what was the, almost the catalyst that resulted in international aviation deciding, okay, this is something that we need because people are now hurting and, and dying um, from these events what how did this whole who who drove this process and how did it all unfold to the mandatory training um that we see today in airline operators 
Um, I, I would be unable to put an exact date or even a year on it, but it has been going on for, for some several years, now 10 to 15 years. And um, I think in certain uh, theatres, it's always been looked at, um, but not that much attention paid to it just yet. But I think sort of the last 15, 20 years with the the onset of, of technology and automation that have, have helped accidents, other, other high um, accident causes, such as CFIT. Um, that was, was a, a huge uh, contributor to hull losses and, and fatalities. But uh, we were able to introduce technologies such as eGPWS, which, which brought those numbers way down. Um, TCAS is another one as well, and um, runway excursions, you know, better runway performance and, and methods of, of calculating runway performance. So what, what, what was happening was that all the other major contributors to, to uh, transport category aircraft accidents, those numbers were coming down, but um, loss of control in flight numbers were not. They were remaining fairly steady and fairly high. And as I mentioned earlier, they became the leading cause of fatalities. So something needed to be done about this. But the unfortunate thing is that loss of control in flight events and the recovery thereof depend very much on what we could consider the weakest part of the, the whole aircraft operation, which is the pilots. Yeah. Um, we can't really replace the pilot with, with computers as much as the manufacturers would like to try. <laughs> um, there's, there's, there is obviously more and more automation coming out as the years go on, but ultimate recovery of the aircraft from an, an, a loss of control remains with the pilot. If, if they can't fix that problem, the aircraft will crash. Um, there's no technology that they can really help us out with in that regard um, to an effective result. So the only way they could try and bring these numbers down was to identify where the, the weak point was, which was identified as um, a lack of or insufficient pilot training. And... Um, trying to put together training programs and um, regulations to, to, in a way, start enforcing that sort of, that sort of training. There's been, been incidences that have ended well before, and a lot of the times, if you looked at the, the pilot's background or training, there was some form of military experience or military training um, there with that pilot, and they uh, used that training um, to to recover the situation in their civilian or commercial aircraft, and that, that was sort of um, an, an opportunity to say, well, what are the guys and girls in the military learning or being taught that we aren't um, teaching in the civilian world? And a lot of it was this advanced training. Um, which we've now coined the term, obviously, UPRT. All right. So that was something that's already been trained in in air forces around the world. I suppose jet upset as we define it, um, they're living within that realm or beyond that envelope on a day-to-day basis, just purely out of necessity, you know, depending on, on what realm we're in, I suppose, civilian pilots 
10,000 foot autopilot goes in, you are straight and level all the way till you, you know, you straight and level all the way till you start to descend. Uh, you, exactly. You're sitting within a completely different envelope. Yeah, exactly. So it became apparent that um, there was a deficiency in, 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 in required skills. Now, the question is, you, it is a, was an identified deficiency in, in specific skills that identified that the Air Force naturally was training these guys in the, in the advanced programs uh, to live within these realms. Um, how do you take a civilian pilot who is used to a particular profile um, their whole flying career? And how do you untrain that automatic response or that fright, startle factor? How do you how do you train them to overcome that initial response and uh, apply some kind of technique in order to to survive that event? Uh, well, it's a great question, and. Um... The, the initial answer is that you, you can't train instinct out of, out of a pilot. So you have to teach them how to work with it. Um, exposure is the first sort of thing that we need to, to do because, as I said, um, if it's the first time you're exposed to a scary situation or a, um, something like that that gives you a big shock or a fright, you're going to react in a particular way. However, if you are subjected to or exposed to that situation over and over and over again in training, over um, training initial training courses and then recurrent training, um, your response to it sort of becomes somewhat um, natural in relation to your training. If you haven't had the training, well, then you're going to respond exactly how um, – your, your human instinct would respond. And we're all different in that sense. But once you've been trained um, and then an upset may not be so startling, you would uh, generally, the, the aim for us as UPOT instructors is to get the candidate to react to the upset in a sense that um, even if they are slightly startled, bring themselves out of the startle and so that let to allow their training to kick in and then apply their training. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's not an easy task. It's really not an easy task. And it, it, it has to be done um, regularly. It's one of those things you need to do you regularly. And when we do recurrent training, it's, it's, it's quite tough because even though someone has done a course and they've been exposed to it and they've trained it, they come back for the recurrent training and, and you do need to take um, one step back to go two steps forward just to remind them of exactly what the training is and to again sort of work out that startle factor or make that startle factor itself not such a, a surprise. Yeah, so you're just training by exposure and exposure to the scenarios. It's almost like, um, you know, my instructor taught me uh, engine failure on departure in, in a single engine piston, for example instinctive reaction turn around try and make it back to the field stretch out the glide um and we know there are reasons as to why you don't do that you're going to end up in some but that's that instinctive reaction um and that 
kind of gets trained out of you through the, through that training intervention. I suppose the approach is very, very similar to UPRT. Yeah, it is. You you just need to expose a candidate to upsets and startles um, over and over and over again. And each time you do it, you enforce a little bit more of the training and it gets to a point where you want to get it to a point where that that training just kicks in. It's just it's it's the, the the instinct that kicks in during an upset is the training you've been taught and not your normal human nature. A word from our sponsor. Located in the heart of the Sunshine Coast, 43 Air School is Africa's best and busiest flight school, offering you a wide range of aviation courses, from a private pilot license, airline pilot license, aircraft mechanic courses, and so much more. Visit 43 Air School at www.43airschool.com to learn more. So, if we look at a typical line pilot, what are kind of some of the maneuvers or scenarios that can quite commonly result in the crew unintentionally ending up in a an upset kind of event um well well when you do the training there's certain factors that we talk about which could cause cause an upset uh, the one I'll, I'll focus on now really is um environmental uh so we focus quite a lot on let's say for example especially with 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 our climate here uh, thunderstorms and wind shear um that could quite easily put your aircraft into an upset um again unexpectedly although you're flying around some some nasty weather you you, you could be somewhat ready for an unexpected uh, aircraft state um but so we we train for that sort of stuff and then also things like uh high altitude stalls um an unnoticed, inadvertent um, high altitude slowdown, and uh, the aircraft uh, goes into a stall at 37, 38,000 feet. How would you recover from that? Or we also we also do it to to a point of um, stalls on the approach, um, and 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 how to recover the aircraft there. So we try and keep it as relevant as possible. Mm. Uh, to to make it as realistic as possible, uh, to get the, the the most gain out of the training, and 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 bear in mind this is all done in in a simulator, in a full flight level D simulator of the type of aircraft that you you're flying. So we do have some limitations on that. So we would obviously try and keep it as as relevant as as possible to events that, as you say, your normal line pilot may be exposed to any day of his roster. Okay, so mostly environmental. There being any kind of events in South African aviation history where a crew might have ended up in an upset uh, scenario that might have been widely reported on. Um, that's the irony of it: is that we we, we generally hear about uh, these things when they go badly. Um, unfortunately, uh, makes the news, uh, and when. If an aircraft were to be put into an upset situation and uh, the crew applied this training and they successfully recovered the aircraft, the odds of the public hearing about it would be quite slim. Obviously, the relevant reports would be put in to to various airlines and um, regulatory authorities, but the odds of the getting out into public knowledge is not not high. But that's good. That's a good thing. 
Um, it means obviously the training is work working and or has worked for that particular event. Um, but to answer your your other question, yes, there I won't go into details, but there have been um, incidents of local aircraft or local airlines, large transport category aircraft, um, having an upset and applying the training and uh, recovering from it. Well, that's what it's there for. It's about those success stories. And one shot us to think what would have happened if uh, that training wasn't in place. And that's what it's, that's why it's there. Well, well, that's exactly the thing. And, and like I said, it's the, the irony of it is that um, it's, it's hard to say, well, how well does this training work? Because, you know, if it's working, you won't really know about it. Now, here's the question. I get interviewed by an operator. I've never done UPRT training in my life. I get to the get through my initial type rating, for example, and now it's time for me to undergo the UPRT element or initial UPRT program. What what does that look like? What what do I as a initial candidate for UPRT training, what can I expect? Um, I think it would be fairly general amongst most airlines and, and operators, but what a candidate could could expect would certainly be an element of uh, of textbook studying um, sure. and some and some theory theory studying and and a, a knowledge exam after that. Um, and then you'd most certainly get a a very thorough pre simulator session briefing. Um, mm. I mean, we, we get accustomed to sort of briefings in the region of an hour to an hour and a half, but a, an initial UPRT briefing would, would, would go well beyond that. Um, and then after that, you'd be, you'd be put into the simulator, nothing less than a, a four-hour session, um, and be put through the whole training program in the simulator. Sure. And then um, a quick debrief after that, and that would, that would count as your initial. Okay, so it's just one session? Yeah, um, just one session required at the moment. As I said, um, uh, operators would 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 vary with that, but sure, there, there's sure. there's certainly a minimum of uh, of of one session. And during that session, is it just continuous uh, upset scenarios that 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 commonly expect to find themselves in, and just applying the the recovery technique? Um, that's the largest element of the training. the The other side of the training is. Um, some some handling handling skills to get you more comfortable with the aircraft, especially sure. if you are doing an initial type rating on that aircraft, um, to give you an opportunity to to get a better feel of the aircraft, and then yeah, then it it uh, delves deep into the uh, the recoveries. Now, quick questions: Does the simulator itself have to be certified to allow for UPRT training? Is this kind of training that can be done on almost any full flight device? No, the simulator does have to have certification uh, for uh, UPRT training to be allowed to be done on it. Um, there are slightly different levels of certification that that uh, that are allowed, but at the bare minimum, a simulator does have to be certified by its governing regulatory authority to be able to conduct UPRT training on it. And is that like a, a special profile package that actually gets installed into the SIM? Or is, like, is there any modification that's made to the device to allow you to take it beyond the limits? Um, not really specifications made onto the device to, to, to be able to go beyond certain limita uh, limitations of the simulator. Um, but a lot of the times the simulators will be, be fitted with software updates sure. that allow the instructor to, 
uh, more accurately by way of a graph even uh, track the movement and the recovery of the airplane. But not all okay. of them have to have that, but that's generally the, the level that they would go for. All right. And uh, me as a, a flight crew member doing that training in the sim, is, is any portion of that training ever actually conducted in, a, in an aircraft, flight aircraft, for example? No, there's, there's no requirement for a, a line pilot to go and do on-aircraft training. Um, they, they are taught, they have to be taught by dedicated UPRT, UPRT instructors um, sure. in, in a certified simulator. But no, there's no requirement for a line pilot to actually go and do any on-aircraft training. All right, so the simulator is fit for the job and the fidelity is great enough that it can actually simulate what it needs to do in order to um, necessitate the recovery technique. Now, my next question is, it's in the simulator. It's kind of in a controlled environment and we know that if something goes wrong, nothing's going to happen. Do you still find, though, with pilots going into, that, into the sim, maybe with that kind of mindset, um, are you still able to induce that startle factor based on the kind of maneuvers or, or scenarios you're putting the guys into kind of put them into that situation so it actually feels feels real? Um, yeah, as a UPOT instructor, that is quite easily one of the the biggest challenges we face is 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 to try and and uh, get that get that student to invest enough into the the belief of the training to 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 do that and yes they do obviously know that they're in a simulator and at the end of the day they're going to walk out of there um but these sims are so real now that uh, if the, if the student and if the instructor does a good enough job of investing the student into it that student can um can get can get quite a fright with with some of the situations they get put into i mean they we we see very definite um startle well effects of of a startle factor um happening in the simulator so even though if they say they're not expecting it and things like that very basic things like you know shutting out or the ability to to talk uh, properly and quickly as they need to um in the simulator so the 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 startle factor element is there always and we do our best to keep it as real as possible but i guess in a simulator you're never really going to be able to get that pure sort of fear of death if i could want to <laughs> phrase, it, phrase it some other way into into a candidate in a simulator i imagine to, to a point there they still have to kind of depending on the exercise they're doing kind of assess have a look at what's going on um and I suppose that is your startle. I've got to kind of, I'm putting in this position. I was level, now I'm not. Um, I've got to try to work out what the heck is going on first. And I suppose and that is the startle. Well, 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 exactly. So the startle happens and then all of the training, as you say, you want to start trying to figure out what is going on. All of those things um, are processes of slowly bringing yourself out of the startle factor. Um, if the startle is is ground zero, then as the training kicks in and starts, the training is very specifically designed um, with how it's done to to bring you out of the startle. Um, 
which will help you recognize exactly what is going on. And then from being able to recognize what is going on, you will be able to um, apply the correct uh, correct techniques to, to recover the aircraft. Has there been a noticeable reduction in terms of lock-eye incidences over the years since this training has been implemented? Uh, again, we, we, we would go back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, and I, I can't really answer that question. Um, without having access to, I guess, all of the reports worldwide of, of lock-eye events. You know, we'd, we'd really only hear about the ones that ended tragically, unfortunately. I um, mean, you can look at those stats, but, you know, I don't know. There, there could very well be um, many, many recoveries using this training. And like I said, it would probably only be the regulator authority of that aircraft register who knows about it. Or sure. maybe that that airline. It wouldn't really be public public knowledge. Um, so it's it's a difficult question to 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 answer. But um, as a, a UPRT advocate, I would I would have to say absolutely, categorically, most certainly, um, the training has helped and has reduced the the number of of lock eye fatalities and hull losses. Um, that's again, I say that not having data on my hand i say that uh, based on my um, experience and assumptions well i imagine international aviation university seeing in how this has been implemented around the world without a doubt it has saved lives and um, there's no doubt about that well it's mandated by law um now and um yeah it's it's part of recurrent training and uh, you have to do it now recurrent training I've done my initial. How often is current training required to be done by law? Uh, dedicated UPRT is required. Okay, well, I'll speak for South Africa at the moment. Sure. Um, part 121 operator, you are required um, to do a dedicated UPRT training session once every 36 months. But that does not uh, preclude an operator from including elements of UPRT training into annual or six monthly recurrency, depending on the instructor. All right, fair enough. So um, trying to read between the lines there, you think 36 months perhaps we should reduce that to a more annual kind of um, recurrent training program for UPRT, given on how important this kind of training is and, and the number of incidences that have been attributed to LACA? Uh, yes, if if I was sitting in on the discussion and my opinion was asked of it, I would uh, go for the best and and ask for it to be uh, mandated to be done annually. Mm. Um, but obviously, it's thirty six months at the moment. My personal opinion is that thirty six months is too much of a gap. Now, that being said, given that it's introduced, so it's it's regulated under one twenty one airline operation, quite late. To be introducing that to a pilot in their career. Ideally, we want to train people the first time uh, as correctly as possible. So that primacy or the instinctive reaction is already there. Do you feel there's a there should be a push to perhaps introduce this earlier on in a pilot's development? And if so, how soon? A hundred percent. And I feel fairly strongly about that. Um, in my opinion. Uh, be that as it may, I I feel that we should we should have elements of UPRT training um, in 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 PPL um, 
flight training at the very grassroots level, as you say, to instill that uh, level of primacy in the pilot in the earliest days. It's always easier to teach something correctly the first time than to um, unteach something that was wrong and then reteach it. Uh, you always bounce back to that that level of primacy. So if if I could um, choose to, or if I ran my own flight school, let's say, I would I would introduce it into uh, the very beginning um, of your your flying career. So somewhere in and around the the, the PPL, uh, because I mean, let's go back to the very beginning of of what you said. When you, you you're a, a private pilot and you, you're building some hours, and off you go to the GF by yourself, and you go and practice stalls and and steep turns and things like that. And yes, you've been taught your stick and rudder skills from your instructor, but are you prepared for something unexpected? Mm-hmm. Um, to go wrong you know so it would be a great time to start introducing a uprt mentality and and recovery techniques and, and strategies um, at that grassroots level of ppl and build on it from there is there any kind of push from the regulator or to introduce it earlier on in the training that you're aware of um uh, not a direct push um, that that i know of but i do know it uh, it is sort of being discussed um, to be considered at those levels, but there's 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 nothing um, in concrete at the moment. Yeah, sometimes these things happen slowly. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Now, for anyone that might be listening to the podcast, saying, you know, I've got my PPL, I'm, I'm or I'm commercial pilot, but I haven't been exposed to your UPRT um, training at this stage of my career. Is there anything that they can do to? join a uprt course is that kind of facility available at all in south africa um just for them to improve their skill set and be ready for that expected um unfortunately not at the moment as far as i know it's only offered by um airlines and and as we know in aviation if it's not regulated we're not going to go and do it um so that's why i would very much like to to get it into some sort of regulatory form in the in the early days um, of for, for PPL pilots, but but currently as it stands, unless flight schools are doing their their own um, training or course for it, there's nothing actually mandated that that means it has to be done. All right, and Kevin, just before you wrap up, one more question: Where do you envision the future of UPRT actually heading? Um, I think. As you said, it's a hot topic, and it's uh, it's gathering a lot of interest. And sadly, uh, we we can't say for sure that we we've seen the last Lockeye um, hull loss. And and um, sadly, um, I mean, it's it's a, it's a certainty. Unfortunately, with airplanes flying. I'm sure one will again eventually lose control and 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 um, not recover. And and as that happens, it's going to gather more traction, I think, um, mm. as people start realizing the value in it. And it's an immense amount of value um, that that an airline or an operator can can take from a a good structured UPRT program. Um, so, for me. I think what UPRT is at the moment is what uh, CRM was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And CRM was introduced into the industry also because of um, 
well-documented and well-known incidents that uh, CRM could quite easily have trapped and prevented. And sure. I think UPRT is going in the same sort of direction. It's, it's, uh, I wouldn't call it in its infancy anymore. It's uh, somewhat a, let's call it a pre-teen. And um, <laughs> it's, um, it's going to gather steam. It's going to grow. It's going to become more important. It's going to become far more widely accepted. And um, to a certain extent, I think it will become slightly more regulated as well with uh, regards to the level of training that is delivered and who is able to and allowed to deliver that training. All right, Kevin, I just want to say thanks for for taking time out to discuss uh, this with us and, and shedding some light on exactly what UPRT is, the benefits associated with receiving that kind of training and maybe giving us a glimpse of what the future holds for UPRT in aviation. You're listening to PTC Industry Talks. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. We'll be bringing you new episodes weekly.